0: This show is brought to you by Ridley College.
1: Welcome back to the Now and
0: the Not Yet. The show where we keep you plugged into everything happening in Bible and theology. Mike, it's been five years. What's been going on? Oh, so many things. So many Australian Prime Ministers.
1: <laughs> well, the good thing is there's been a gap in the programming, but we have been harassed by emails and requests to get this thing going again.
0: Yep. And Tim Foster says whoever has his goldfish, he wants it back <laughs> because he's,
1: he's allowed the show to go ahead. Right. So as a band, though, we've stayed together and we've kept on working. We've, there's been some highs and then there's been some big, big highs. And then there was the incident in the Denver airport.
0: Oh, the Denver episode. I thought we'd agreed we'd never <laughs> speak of that again. Well, it's probably the highlight
1: of our friendship.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a friend that you need sometimes.
1: Okay, so what happened was we flew into the USA, finally got through security, took forever. We were about to get on our subsequent flight to Denver and then I start doing this kind of thing because I'm looking for my passport and I can't find my passport and I'm in America and without a passport, Australians get locked up and I'm terrified and I fall to my knees in the middle of the airport. Bags go everywhere. And I hear that voice, Michael Bird's voice.
0: There, there, Scott. You'll be okay. Your passport's in your back pocket.
1: (sighs) Thank you, Mike. And the good thing is I did have my passport in my back pocket and you haven't teased me about that since.
0: No, but I did buy you a special little um, passport bag that you could always wear around your neck so you never have a kind of moment like that again (laughs)
1: because that's what friends do. That's what friends do. You bought that uh, for Christmas for me, didn't you? It's like a little baggy. In case I get lost. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you always know where your passport is. But, uh, yeah, we've, we've done a lot of things. There's been some great things happening at Ridley College. We've been done uh, our own reading and writing and research projects. I got to do, like, a bit of a book tour with uh, NT Wright, which was a bit of a professional highlight. But we have also had lots of fun teaching students on campus, online, uh, going to conferences, well, up until fairly recently, that yeah, is. that's right. <laughs> uh, discovering whole new ways of delivering things on Zoom and stuff like that.
1: But now and not
0: yet. Let's let's change topics for a moment, Scott. Yeah. Let's do something a little bit more a little bit more serious. Okay. Now, if you had to have a you know, a church where you could pick two people from church history, yeah, to be on your
1: pastoral team, who would you pick? Okay, that that's easy, mate. John of Canton Prey and Lutgardis. Both Middle Ages uh, saints, uh, noble people who do great things. And you can read about them in this book here. This, uh, their stories are told by Thomas of Canton Pray. Let me tell you about John, then I'll tell you about Lutgardis. John of Canton Pray and Ludgardus, they were both community builders, deep Christians who knew that the love of Christ changes people and changes communities. Both characters brought together a group of focused Christians around them, and what they understood was that the talents that Christ gives need to be repaid with souls. In other words, get on with Christian ministry. I find that very motivating. But here's the lovely thing in the story of John of Canton Pray, he goes around preaching, but what he does is a lot of mentoring that leads to Zacchaeus moments. So, in the story of John on Canton Pray, there's lots of stories of how he brings the nobles of his time to repentance. And in the story, it describes how he approaches them. He explains that Christ can come to them and they can live a wholly new life. And then what's fascinating is you have these stories of these rich nobles, moneylenders, who go back into towns where they'd rip people off. They'd go back with a sack of silver. They would repay people what they ripped off. They would apologise, commit to not doing again and living a new life. And then they would seal it with a kiss on the hand Or if the person refused because they were still angry at them, he would offer to kiss their foot. So in these stories, you have what repentance looks like in the day and how John persevered, preaching, visiting, mentoring, befriending to bring people to repentance and change whole communities. I would like that kind of person on my staff team. The second person is Lutgardis. She is known for her virtue. So she is someone who embodied the virtues that Christ said that we should have in the Sermon of the Mount. Humility, purity of heart, righteousness, someone who wanted to see change in the world and grieved over change. She wanted two things, that God would help her to be able to read and understand the Psalms even though she was illiterate. And then she also asked Christ that Jesus would change her heart so that she would have his perspective and love for everyone. And that happened. So there's actually some good people in the Middle Ages. <laughs>
0: yes. So not just the Reformation.
1: Not just the Reformation, but I, including the Reformation.
0: I, I don't understand, Scott. I, <laughs> I, I thought church history began in 1517 and all that was just kind of ritual and darkness. I don't, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> well, let, let me tell you about the two people I would have. Okay. Great. Yep. Number one, I would have Irenaeus.
1: Irenaeus, right.
0: Bishop of Leon. From Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, mm-hmm. the guy basically invented biblical theology. Or okay. At least, at least made it cool. Okay. okay. So he he became the the bishop, or effectively the senior pastor, for a group of churches right after there'd been a real... Uh, bout of persecutions and martyrdoms in, in modern day France, wrote some great books trashing the heresies of his day, Okay, you know, casting shade on Marcion and the Valentinians and anyone, everyone else who was messing with the apostolic message. So I'd definitely put Irenaeus on there because I think he would do some really, really good preaching. So I'd put him on the preaching okay. register.
1: Yep. So Irenaeus, who, who else? Okay, I would go
0: for Macrina the Younger.
1: Macrina the Younger, okay. Yes.
0: Okay. So she's kind of what, what, fifth century, fourth century, fifth century? Yep. yep. And she's she's got two brothers who are two real crash hot theologians.
1: Yeah, the Cappadocians. Yeah.
0: Cappadocians. Uh, but she was very spiritual herself and very theological. Right. Now, we don't have any particular writing uh, from her, but there is a dialogue reported from her. You know, apparently when she was on her deathbed, yeah. about the dialogue um, of the soul, mm. and also her brothers wrote a life of her. Yeah. And you know, she she was you know at the forefront of what you would call. Um, feminine spirituality in the ancient world in Christianity. So I definitely want her on my pastoral team as well. Um, If if Irenaeus is there to do the preaching, I want Macrina there to keep the the spiritual temperament focused on Christ and keep us all in the journey towards the heavenly Jerusalem. So that's that's who's on
1: my pastoral team. That's a great pastoral team. Who
0: would you not have? Who would you like the least person you would never want on your pastoral team?
1: Well, there's a lot of people I wouldn't want. But I'll tell you someone about whom I'm cautious. Her life is also recorded in this book. Christina Mirabilis, known as the zombie saint. Oh,
0: zombie saint?
1: Yeah. So she um, dies and is about to be interred. However, at her funeral, she sits up and the thing that she does is she embodies in this life the consequences of sin that you would suffer in the next. So here's the thing. She is someone who's like the the blunt Australian or the blunt German, who's like, okay, mate, you're into porn. This is what's going to happen to you. Walks right up to the freeway here and just walks across the freeway as to say, if you keep on living this life, you're going to get run over by a truck in hell. So she was someone who was very provocative. She'd throw herself into lakes. She'd throw herself off the roof of the church. She wanted to warn people about what was coming, but it was very dramatic and very scary Um. Remember, this is before Netflix, so these things were written for entertainment too. I get it, but um, Christina Mirabilis may have scared people a little bit too much in a contemporary church. So possibly um, let's keep her um, outside the ministry task, but a great woman later on in her life in particular, she becomes someone who is full of wisdom and virtue and a great confessor, but but not in her early stages.
0: Yeah, I think the zombie stage is something you want to try and avoid <laughs> In ministry. For me, the person I would not want would be Saint Igor the Cantankerous. Oh. I think his name says it all. <laughs> yes, his exactly. name says it all. Actually, I just made that up. There is no Igor the Cantankerous. There
1: is a Peter the Dirty. Um, but he was dirty only because he was like a um a coal worker. Um but anyway, um
0: Okay, so yeah. that wasn't about his ethics no, or kind no. of yeah, like my friend ripped me off and I'm so dirty about it. No, yeah. No. So it wasn't like that. I yeah. That's good. Well, uh, who would you like on your uh, church pastoral team from church history? You know, go, go into the comments section. Let us know who you would like from church history
1: to be part of the pastoral team in your church. But now and not yet. Great. Now, Mike, we've also been busy working together. In addition to Ridley College, we've edited some books. We have. Some crack a books. All right. Show us, mate. What have we got?
0: We've got this one, the Cambridge Companion to the Apostolic Fathers. Okay,
1: so what's a, what's a Cambridge Companion and who are the Apostolic Fathers? What's that?
0: Well, Cambridge is a mythical place in the United <laughs> Kingdom where university students go to be taught and learn things, but they end up leaving and then working for the British government. Uh, okay. no, It's, it's actually, a, uh, Cambridge is obviously the university in the United Kingdom. Yep. Uh, but they have a press there and they, produce all these companions, like the companion to Socrates or the companion to the English Revolution or
1: the companion to, you know, 19th century veganism. Okay. So they're introductions to a topic and kind of where the critical edge of research and scholarship is on that topic. Exactly. But Scott, why, why did we decide to do a book on the apostolic fathers? What's to learn about the apostolic fathers? Well... It was came from the classroom, Mike. I remember we had a discussion over morning tea that we were wanting to introduce our students to this group of authors who are the second and third generation of Christians. The apostolic fathers were people who either knew the disciples, so they were disciples of, say, St. John, or they knew disciples of John. So we're trying to track the disciples of the disciples and the first generations of Christians, and you and I found that there just wasn't much that was helpful that we could offer to our students uh, for reading. And what did we find, brother? Oh, we
0: found a whole bunch of great stuff. We found a way to connect students with you know the next generation of Christians after the New Testament. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like the sequel to the New Testament. You know what what happens next yep. and it wasn't the case of it all turned into a bunch of ceremonial ritual proto-medieval catholics who provide the kind of background for Martin Luther to come on the scene some 1200 years later that's not what what happens you find a vibrant church growing struggling with a lot of issues like mm-hmm. if you read the letter of first clement yep. he's writing to he's writing as the bishop of rome to the churches in corinth
1: so the same ones that paul writes to in the new testament
0: Yep. So he's he's writing to them, uh, at dealing with uh, some of the same issues like divisions. <laughs> I know, <laughs> keeps happening. So he's dealing with that. But then you've got other documents like the Didache, which seems to be a Syrian manual of discipleship.
1: I love the Didache. It's um, kind of a policy and procedure manual, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is a bit. It's also some you know some tips on how to do worship. Uh, you know what to do. How do you treat travelling apostles and prophets? some guy rocks up to your church saying, hey, I've got the word of word of the Lord, and yeah. $29.95,
1: it's yours. Exactly. I mean,
0: what do you do with those sorts of people?
1: Yeah. Also, what do you do if you want to baptize someone and you're not near a river or running water? Um, and how do you baptize people? Um, how do you do the Lord's Supper? And we have insights into the practices of just regular, normal Christians through these documents. It's really fascinating. If you want to see how early Christians lived, these letters, these documents of the Apostolic Fathers give us real insights. Do you know
0: who my favorite writing or my favorite person or my favorite text is from the Apostolic fathers?
1: Scott? Diognetus. You know?
0: Yes, the epistle to Diognetus. Now, we don't know <clears throat> who wrote this, okay? And in fact, this this is a text that we only know about because someone discovered, discovered it in a fishmonger's shop in Constantinople in like the 1500s. Yeah. Okay. But it is a beautiful and elegant apology for the Christian faith. He kind of goes out of his way to you know, critique some of the practices of the Jews and the pagans, but then he talks about Christ as you know God's son sent into the world, you know our great mediator, that type of thing. And he's got this wonderful section on the role of Christians in the world. Yeah. I mean, Christians are to the world like a soul is to the body. Okay, it's it's a really wonderful writing. I, I, I love it. I enjoy reading. I just find it so incredibly encouraging and uplifting. And that's the type of literature we want students and readers of the book to know about, mm. to learn about, mm. so it can enrich both their knowledge of church history, but also, I think, also enrich and encourage them in their faith, yeah. that after the New Testament there is another vibrant generation, and the the fire is being passed on.
1: Exactly, and that that's our Christian DNA and heritage, isn't it, Mike?
0: That is, and that's what we've got to we've got to look back on. We look back on the New Testament, but we've got to be very interested. We've got to be very curious about how the New Testament was received, used validated, preached, taught how it was struggled with and wrestled with in the earliest
1: generations after it was written. Exactly. So, for example, in the martyrdom of Polycarp, we see that um, the obedient life, the imitation of Christ, a life according to the gospel, is a phrase that's used there. So, immediately around the time of the second and third generation of Christians, it's very evident people have not forgotten about Jesus Christ and they haven't forgotten what it is to live a life that imitates him and his ways.
0: Yeah, and there's one line from the martyrdom of Polycarp where he he says, pray for me that I would not just be called a Christian, but I would
1: prove to be one by how I die. Nice. Mike, in addition to writing about the apostolic fathers, we also edited a book on the Trinity, Um, Trinity without hierarchy. And in this book, we're addressing really important contemporary issues in the doctrine of the Trinity. Why did we do that? That's a good question, Scott,
0: because the Trinity and the sort of intra-Trinitarian relations between the Father and the Son have been a hot topic of debate. Absolutely hot. Particularly amongst evangelicals.
1: There's one particular brand of complementarianism, and complementarianism is? Uh, The belief that there is an authority structure between men and women in the family, in the church, and sometimes in society, that means that women should be subservient and obedient, to the man who has the spiritual authority over the woman.
0: Now, some people are trying to get that view bankrolled or get it from the Trinity. So here's the idea. Uh, men and women are in the image of God. So they're both equal in being, but you know, women are kind of maybe subordinated in role, which they argue is reflected in the Trinity. Right. Because although father and son are equal, the son is subordinate to the father. Okay. So th- they try to see uh, the male-female relationship, as a reflection of the type of subordination of sorts that you find in the Trinity. But there is a few reasons why this is a very bad
1: idea. Take it away, Scott. Well, one of them is that simply it's not warranted by Scripture. Scripture nowhere talks about there being three wills in the Trinity and the Son being obedient to the Father. Um, There's also the issue that we shouldn't read the relations between the Father, Son, Spirit in history into who God is in himself, aside from history. For example, Mike, we see that in Jesus' life, Jesus is um, conceived by the Spirit. He grows under the influence of the Spirit. The Spirit sends him out into the desert. He's under the executive authority of the Spirit, if you like, during his lifetime. But then that flips when he ascends into heaven. So you've got a change in the relations that you see in history between Um, the Son and the Spirit. And so this tells us that the relationships between Father, Son, Spirit in history are probably determined by his Messianic vocation more than as a mirror reflection of the relations of God in eternity. So we need to be careful with not overreading the relations in history as indicative of who God is in himself. Plus, when Paul in Philippians talks about um, human relationships based on God's work as the Trinity, he doesn't appeal to Trinitarian relations. He appeals to the incarnation. Have the same mind as Jesus Christ who, though being equal in the form of God, takes on a human nature as a servant and goes to the cross. So it's the incarnation that gives you the model for all Christians serving one Mm. another rather than Trinitarian relations. He makes the same argument in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So there's a ton of problems with this view. Also, it goes against the history of the creeds, which shape how Christians understand the Trinity.
0: Yeah, but Scott, there are some texts that could be said to imply a certain subordinationism. You know, when Jesus says the Father is greater than I in John's Gospel, or what about in 1 Corinthians 15 where, you know, uh, Jesus hands the kingdom over to the Father. Uh, these are texts that have been used to suggest or imply that Christ is subordinated in at least
1: some sense to the Father. What do the authors of this book do with passages like that? Uh, well, there's an excellent essay by Adisola Akala. She's an English uh, theologian specialist in John's Gospel. She points out that whenever Jesus speaks about being sent by the Father, it's prefaced or framed by a statement about the equality of Of the Father and the Son in terms of their divine nature. So she wants to say they are the same in terms of their divine nature, and the sentness of the Son only refers to a mission in history and has nothing to do with how the Son, the Father, and the Spirit relate in eternity. And therefore, we can't make any claims about distinctions of authority, power, and glory within the Trinity. Based on these Johannine texts, it's an excellent argument because Mike, you've got to remember, some people have said that the Father is more glorious than the Son, so he deserves a different kind of worship than the Son. That is falling into polytheism. It's tearing apart your doctrine of God. It's absolutely unbiblical. It scores an 18.6 on the heresyometer. It does, and it it's does. only meant
0: to go up to 10.
1: Exactly, and so basically, wow. we did what this does. This is gastrostop. When you've had the fish taco and it's coming out of both ends, take this. When it's coming out of both ends, theologically to do with the doctrine of the Trinity, take this. That's basically our argument. Possibly twice a day. (laughs) Yeah,
0: that's what we cover. And that's the type of theology we want to do because we want to do stuff that's going to be interesting, relevant, uh, informative, but also going to contribute to current debates and hopefully help the church, help Christians, help our students. You know, know know God better and be truer to the scriptures and to the wisdom
1: of the broader Christian tradition. Yeah, so there you go, Mike. We've been working in the past and working in the present uh, with our students at Ridley College. It's been a great time. It has. It's been great. Hot off the press.
0: Let's do some book reviews. Yeah. For me, the number one book I've read in 2021 has to be Lisa Bowen's book on African-American readings of the Apostle Paul. Now, you could easily imagine why a lot of African-American Christians Could have a problem with the Apostle Paul, you know, all that stuff like slaves submit to your masters, and some African Americans, you know, did have a problem with Paul about that. But they also found in Paul a great resource to resist the ideology of their slave masters, and they also saw in Paul a way of confronting their own sin and a source of spiritual encouragement, and even a kind of map or a, a plan for the liberation of God's people from sin from evil, from suffering, particularly associated with slavery, but even going beyond that. Uh, This is a book that was really eye-opening. It shows you the horrors of slavery through the lens of uh, faithful Christians who lived through it and how they saw in Paul something to wrestle with and struggle with, but ultimately a resource to renew their faith. This is my number one
1: book for 2021. Wow, great. Well, let's go to North Africa. But in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. This is a compilation of Greek and Latin narratives on Christian martyrdom accounts. Eric Ribelard has put them together for us. Some of these accounts are just court proceedings that describe Christians holding on to their faith when they were being confronted and called before a Roman court and told to deny their faith. They are just legal documents. They're very interesting. But the fascinating ones are the Passion Documents. And in these documents, we can see the way that Christians drew on God's activity during persecution to assure them that God was still involved even when terrible things happened. These are a great encouragement of what our early Christian um, brothers and sisters went through and how God held on to them and they held on to God during times of persecution. But now and not yet...
0: Next time on The Now and Not Yet, we're going to talk about how to keep your faith alive, particularly in the context of discussing deconstruction. We're also going to have a glance at the book of Isaiah. Hope you've enjoyed the show. We look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, do us a big favor. Please like, share a comment and subscribe. Get the word out. The Now and Not Yet
1: is back. See you next time. The Now and Not Yet a show that keeps you plugged into everything Bible and theology.